Westmount, take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible, second book of the Pentateuch, Exodus chapter 1 is where we are, where we started, and you can go right to verse 8 to anchor, but we will take a look at the whole chapter, but we will review what we did last week in verses 1 through 7, Exodus chapter 1. Look with me right at the beginning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and... If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That is God's word. For two days in January of 2015, the church in the Republic of Niger burned. In a span of four hours, just four hours, over 50 evangelical buildings were ravaged and destroyed. Church buildings, members' homes, orphanages, and on it goes, all brought to rubble. The following day, another 10 buildings were torched, with a mob running through the streets demanding the execution of anyone that would preach Christ. Those two days in that West African country, the church witnessed a persecution that by, listen, every measure should have simply shut it down completely. You see that? It should have shut it down and stamped it out. How can there be a future for a group whose infrastructure literally has been obliterated? How attractive to get modern, how compelling, how sustainable is such intense oppression? That's horrible marketing. With the threat of violence and death, how could anyone remain or listen? How could anyone progress? By all our observations, is this not true? Angry mobs and burning buildings scare people away. Yet by August, this was in January, yet by August, local pastors were recording, remember they're scattered into homes, a significant increase in church attendance those houses were bursting. And not only bursting and gathering, but growing exponentially. 
By September, the next month, four of the church buildings had already been rebuilt. Really. And within five years of that fateful January, mark this, the church population in Niger had increased 29% from where it was through those days of violence and oppression. Mark that. The population of God's people, hear it, actually grew under persecution. Does that make sense? The population of God's church, God's people, grew under persecution. How is that? How is that? I mean, after all the violence, the threats, the loss of destruction, weren't they paying attention? How is that? Well, beloved, listen, what God's people experienced in Niger is nothing new, and it's a truth that transcends every era and dispensation. It is the divine equation that oppressive rulers can ignore and suppress, but listen, ultimately they are powerless to, and it is this, persecution equals multiplication. There's your math for this morning. Persecution equals multiplication. Laid out simply, let me lay it out straight this morning, it is this timeless biblical truth that we can say this way, the more God's people are persecuted equals the more God multiplies his people. The more God's people are persecuted, the more God multiplies his people. Isn't that amazing? It's divine math. That truth is no more vividly displayed in the Old Testament than right here. Look down at Exodus 1. You'll get your technicolor today. As we've read already, there's oppression here, persecution in abundance. There's bitter slavery, ruthless hard work. And of course, as we read, the execution order, the infamous execution order from the ruler. Yet always following on the heels of that, we have verses like this. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Amazing. Westmount oppression and persecution can destroy many things. That's not what we're denying this morning, right? Oppression and persecution are destructive. They tear down. Church buildings, community safety, permitted assemblies, health, life, and so on. But what oppression cannot stop? What oppression cannot stop is the growth and strength of God's people. Oh, church, I pray this text encourages your soul in these challenging times. We will look at this truth under two headings. One is the wrong fear, one is the right fear. That's it this morning. That's what we'll look at. Let's begin with the first and a look at the wrong fear. The wrong fear. Look at verse 8. Provides a good reminder of the context as this book opens. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now you would look at that and you might say, why is the king of Egypt's knowledge of Joseph so important? Why is this a detail that we need to keep in mind? Well, remember in Genesis, this is what we looked at last time. Remember through the providential circumstances, Joseph left for dead by his brothers, gets into the Pharaoh's court in Egypt, and he ascends to the second highest position in the land. And here it is, he earns favor with this foreign king. Favor. And that's the the favor of Pharaoh. And and favor that we looked at last week that led to the preservation of God's people. Do you remember that? God preserving the remnant. What did Joseph say so famously in Genesis 50-20? What you meant for evil, what? God meant for good. Right? That's the divine economy, right? And I want you to mark that as we begin. The divine economy is unlike anything we see out there. Is that not true? It turns that upside down, God harnessing evil for good. And here, Joseph left for dead in God's economy now rises to the favor of an Egyptian court. Now listen, the preservation of God's people was one thing, but we saw more than that, did we not, last week as this book opened? Look at verse 7. Remember where we left off. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's amazing. God's people are growing, not only just preserved, but they're growing. And look at it, exceedingly so. And that would be after years of fruitful conditions and favor and after years of fruitful multiplication. 
And we know, by the way, that a significant amount of time has passed between verses 7 and verse 8 because eventually a pharaoh arises, look at it, in verse 8, that did not know Joseph. Now, it would be very unlikely that the immediate successor of that pharaoh that rose Joseph up would not know Joseph. In fact, maybe two, maybe three. So we're talking about an immense passage of time here. Likely, a few kings down the line, Joseph and his favor are long forgotten. All these later rulers look out. All they can see are the swarms of Hebrews. Can you picture that? That's what they see. And as earthly swarms often do, they arouse fear. And they do just that for Pharaoh. Look at verse 9 with me. And he said to his people, this is Pharaoh, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh looks out at that horizon, surveys the scene laterally, and what? He is afraid. Pharaoh is afraid. Now mark this, beloved. He's afraid because he sees lots of people. Pharaoh is afraid because he sees a lot of people that are not like him. Pharaoh is afraid because he makes some assumptions. Do you see the assumptions he makes there? The enemy alignment. I know what these people will do. And in that fear... Mark it, Pharaoh acts. In that fear, that horizontal fear, he acts. Look back at verse 9. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. In fear, Pharaoh resorts to oppression. In fear, Pharaoh turns, here it is, to his own power. That fear and oppression is outlined in verse 11. We continue. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The Israelites are loaded with burdens, so much so it's complete with taskmasters. You can imagine Pharaoh in that court, in the wrong fear, turning to his counselors, maybe with a nervous laugh, saying, that'll do it, that'll do it. These Hebrews think they're a match for Egypt. You just wait and see. You can almost feel that from the text. Pharaoh is going to deal with this. And indeed, we do see. We see how that plan unveils for Pharaoh. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, Westmount, I don't want us to miss the layers of irony and instruction that are in that verse. Let's not miss that this morning. First, note the simple fact stated at the beginning. Look at it. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In other words, try as you might, Pharaoh, but your efforts are not harming them. They're hurting you. Do you see that? Second, not only are Pharaoh's efforts to his own harm, but again, as we said, they are to Israel's help. This is this reversal we keep talking about. Under Pharaoh's fearful plan, Israel multiplied and expanded. The very thing Pharaoh feared, he was abetting by his own fearful response. Do you see that? It's like being afraid of the fire and your reaction is to throw hot coals and oil on it. It's exactly what Pharaoh's doing. Thirdly, note the end of the verse, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Amazing. This kind of is the capstone on the switcheroo here. Just incredible. That is a movement from fear to dread. Do you see that word? Which is what happens with the wrong fear. Westmount, don't miss that. In the wrong fear, it always moves from fear to dread. Dread. The movement from fear to dread is always what happens. And even for you and I today, when we have the wrong fear. Church, let's not miss this ripe opportunity for lesson here. Pharaoh feared a people. A people. Egypt's fear was human to human. And I'll tell you, that kind of fear, human to human, always breeds assumption. Like it did for Pharaoh. 
That kind of wrong fear always operates on and assumes and fears the worst. Mark that. When you fear another human being, this is what happens. Leads to assumption, leads to dread. Because like Pharaoh here, it is a fear, and mark this, that is fearing the wrong thing. Do you see that? Pharaoh is fearing the wrong thing. And Westmount Church, Christian, I hardly need to ask you, have you been there? Have you been there? You're in fear. It's horizontal. It's a fear of people. And it's a fear. Have you been there? If you let it linger with you too long, all of a sudden you start to write the script. Have you been there? And you make assumptions. Then what do you do? What's the next thing you do after those assumptions? You have to act, right? Because you can't sit in that fear. You have to do something. And like Pharaoh here, this is what happens. And you know this. I know this. Things get worse. Beloved, I hardly need to give examples here because we all have countless, do we not? And what we need to see, what we need to learn and walk away with today is this truth. Here it is. The wrong fear, the wrong fear not only compounds your problems, but it compounds your fear. Let me say that again. The wrong fear not only compounds your problems, but it compounds your fear. Egypt, in that wrong fear, moved from fear to dread. Do you see that? They did not learn. Look at verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When things got worse, what did Egypt do? They pressed into that wrong fear. And they pursued that wrong fear with more persecution against Israel. Do you see that? Oh, church, let us learn here. Let us not turn to the wrong fear. Look at this picture. Instead, let our fear be solitary. We're not saying don't fear. We're going to see this vividly in a moment. It's who you fear. It's who you fear. Yes, there is a right fear. That's right, there is a right fear, and that right fear is exactly what we see next. We've seen the wrong fear. Let's look at the right fear. We've seen fear move to dread. Now we'll see dread move to desperation. Look at verse 15 with me. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Clearly, as you keep reading this account, the ruthless slavery of verse 15 did not work. It did not work. Evidently, the bitter lives of hard work and relentless brick making were not doing what they were intended to do. So the Pharaoh, in fear, Mark, it in fear has to step it up. And history shows us by way of many accounts. History books are filled with this. What happens when wrong fears turn to dread and turn to desperation? It escalates. And basically, we could sum it up this way with wrong fear. If you can't stop them, kill them. Kill them. And again, we have countless wars to show for that. Thus, Pharaoh calls in, likely, two of the chief Hebrew midwives... Shifra and Puah, that's why they would be named there, and he gives them an edict to pass on to all their peers regarding the birth stool. The birth stool there, by the way, literally means in the Hebrew, two stones. In ancient times, that's how they gave birth. They would sit and they would squat on those two stones and give birth. So the two stones represented, it's like a birthing suite. That's what the reference is there. When you're with them, when you're in that situation, when they're literally in the process of giving birth. That's what Pharaoh is referring to. Pharaoh then says, in that scene, he orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies that are delivered. Wow. You, know, you might say many things. And I'm sure you're aghast to see such an edict and order, which, by the way, is not very different to what we see today. Is it not true? Infanticide is everywhere. I hear in Western Europe and parts of Western Europe, 
doesn't matter even if the baby is birthed. A text like this just cries out itself for the dignity of human life. Anyway, that's for another time. You might ask, why the male babies? Why the males? Well, let me give you two things. First, practically, the males grew up to fight in the armies. The males were stronger, physically stronger. They were the ones recruited and enlisted to fight. And in one sense, what Pharaoh is doing here, let's cut them off at their power source. Let's get rid of the males. However, spiritually, a male, and here it is as we dig deeper, a male seed of Israel would always face attack. Does that not ring a bell? The pursuit of a male seed of Israel, we have the entire Bible as we began to learn in class this morning, outlines this pursuit. Genesis 3.15, mark it, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of who? The serpent. That grand narrative, that grand pursuit unveiled over all of Scripture. You have Herod pursuing that seed in Matthew 2. You have the dragon in Revelation 12 pursuing that seed all over Scripture. This is yet another chapter in that cursed, drawn-out attempt since the Garden of Eden. And the roles of the Hebrew midwives offered this satanic opportunity to get at the seed. I want us to see this. This is like the deceiver rubbing his hands saying, now's the time. In the most vulnerable of moments at birth, that's where I'm going to get him. Hebrew midwives were very important in birth, in childbirth. And by the way, they have done not just the Hebrews, but the Egyptians as well. Taking the newly born child, right? Picture this, the midwife was the first hands. First hands on that baby, cutting the cord, washing and salting the baby, then wrapping and preparing the baby. Think about that. In all those steps, there's lots of opportunity to do what? Murder the child. Murder the child. What Pharaoh says here, during that beautiful process of bringing life, I want you to bring death. Bring death. Now, before we move forward, we just want to make sure that we are clear here. This, beloved, is the terminus for wrong fear. I want us to see this. This is where wrong fear will get you every time. Wrong fear leads here, death. Wrong fear at the beginning of life leads to what? Abortion and killing the baby. Wrong fear at the end of life leads to what? Medically assisted suicide and killing yourself. Wrong fear every time leads to death. Physically, spiritually, every single time. And wrong fear here, like we see so often, for one's own life, see Pharaoh, self-preservation. I see the threat, I need to preserve myself. Once again, is a vivid picture of what happens when you act on that wrong fear. From Cain to Herod to all of history's brutal rulers, the story is exactly the same. It leads to death. And this is an example for us here. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, you can mark this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that these things, these Old Testament accounts like this, were written down for what? For our instruction, the text says. We're given these pictures and stories for our instruction. Westmont, let's not miss the instruction here. The picture of wrong fear, where it leads, and now, here it is, the picture of right fear. Right fear, which we see expressed now in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. This is the right fear. The plain reading of that verse tells us two very important things. Number one, the midwives feared God. Do you see that? The midwives feared God. Now, the Hebrew word for fear there is very important. It speaks of fear that by its nature, here it is, leads to a responsive action. That's how detailed that word is. It's, it's not just a fear, but there's some sort of fear, fear response that elicits action. This is fear like awe and reverence. In fact, we could even say honor. Holy fear 
like that which produces, here it is, obedience. That's what we're talking about here. That's the sense. Now that's important because the midwives do obey. I want us to see this this morning. The midwives obey. Here's the thing. They just don't obey the ruler. They don't obey Pharaoh. And that brings us to our second point of right fear. This verse tells us that the midwives' fear of God led to disobeying Pharaoh. Do you see that? The the midwives' fear of God which is the parent, which is the fountainhead, which is the top, led to a disobedience of the ruler of the day. We cannot miss this. Look again at verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. There's such a close connection here between the two, fearing God and how that works out horizontally. In other words, it is because of a fear that they disobeyed. And that's just so important here. It's because of a fear. Yet, note this, it's not a fear of Pharaoh. It's not a fear of legal consequences. It's not a fear of jail time. It's not a fear of death. No, the Hebrew midwives feared God and thus they disobeyed Pharaoh here. Here, lots of qualifications there which we're going to work through. The Hebrew midwives had, here it is, the right fear, the vertical fear, the holy fear. The Hebrew midwives were not acting in fear of men, but fear of God. Church, you cannot have both. I want to say to you this morning, you just cannot have both. You can't. You cannot fear both masters. You can't. That's the picture here. That's the great tension in the church today. Wanting to be all things to all people, to fear a whole bunch of things. But it just doesn't work that way. You fear one. One. Pharaoh was commanding something against the law of God. And by the way, even at this point in the story, the law of God revealed already. You say, well, wait a minute. We haven't even got to Mount Sinai. It's true. Pharaoh's command came in direct opposition to the command of God. This is how holistic the word of God is. Consider, God said to his people this, go forth and multiply. And where did we find that? Genesis 1, 28. Genesis 9, verse 1. Go forth and multiply. That's a command. What about this? God said in the same chapter of Genesis 9, verse 6, do not shed the blood of man made in the image of God. In other words, at the birth stool... Out is coming an image bearer of the one true God. Don't slaughter it. Don't slaughter that baby. That's the command of God from the very beginning of Revelation. It's never changed. And the Hebrew midwives knew that that was God's command. Hence, when Pharaoh came along and ordered something directly contrary, they had a choice. And here it is. Let me crystallize it this morning. Obey Pharaoh or obey God. Do you see in this account, you can't do both? Do you see that? You you can't marry the two. Our Western sensibility says there has to be a way. We've got to dovetail these two, right? I just don't want anyone to have a confrontation. I just, just want to leave me alone, right? No. This account leaves no room for us here. You obey God or you obey Pharaoh. Here it is. You fear Pharaoh or you fear God. Whom do you fear? Whom do you fear? Beloved, contrary to popular opinion, there are times when these two do collide and do conflict. And church, because of the climate that we're in today, we just need to pause for a moment here. It demands it. A text like this just demands it. Yes, some of you are thinking of Romans 13. No question about that. It says this, let me quote it, to to let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And we do just that. Indeed, church, we obey the government. We honor the emperor. We follow their direction. But church, look, these midwives alone demonstrate that such obedience is not without exception. Do you see that? There is an exception to that. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. We obey God and God alone, and he is the fountainhead. Why? Because he's perfect. Do you see that? In him there is no darkness. His edicts are perfect and true. Everything that God says is perfect and you obey it. How about men? We are sinful. 
And here it is, husbands, I know you're with me in this, teachers, leaders, just because you're in a place of authority doesn't mean you're perfect, right? And that is why, beloved, please, that is why we fear God and God alone. There is no other fear. He is perfect. He is good and righteous and true. Every edict he gives, we obey, like these Hebrew midwives here. They demonstrate that here, that they fear God alone. And the question arises then when rulers and governments command you to break God's law, because here it is, they do. In fact, let's just stick in the Bible for this morning. Daniel 3. Daniel's friends were commanded by government to what? Worship a golden image. Well, that would be directly contrary to the revealed command of God. What about three chapters later in Daniel 6? Daniel himself was commanded by government to bow down and pray to King Darius. That's from government. What about Peter and the apostles? As Brother Z read for us this morning in Acts 5, I pray you were paying attention to that text. Could it be any clearer? Could it be any clearer? When commanded by government not to teach in Christ's name, imagine government, the authority of government, comes and says, don't preach Christ. And what do they say in Acts 5, 29, mark it, we must obey who? God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Now, time betrays us this morning to linger here, so we are going to begin a series and camp out here on Wednesdays, because I know you have lots of questions. I've heard them in our present times, and we want to just take time and talk through these things. So Wednesday nights are a beautiful opportunity for us to do just that, and we begin a series on authority this week. So we can't camp here too long. However, I do want to take advantage of this passage and just leave you with two things, two observations that I would say it this way. If you grab nothing else about obedience and disobedience, we grab it from this text. Number one, an appropriate time to obey God by disobeying governments is real. Do you see that? An appropriate time to obey God by disobeying governments is real. This is not fairy tale stuff. I think for so many, myself included, it's been the stories you've read until now. And here it is, your Daniel, and what will you do, right? This, this is not Sunday school back shelf stuff anymore. This is ever present right now. And beloved, can I say this from my heart to you? What our Lord is impressing on us is to say, are you ready? Are you ready? Will you stand for me? Will you fear me or will you fear them? To whom do you stand for? In fact, this is not only a present reality, but biblical, biblical. And at times, I would submit to you, it's been famously called civil disobedience, that civil disobedience at times, beloved, is the only option. I've actually heard people tell me over the past few months that you would never, ever, on any condition, disobey God. It's been said and maybe you flirted with that. Maybe you turned to Romans 13 and say, I don't care what they're saying in church. I know what they're saying in government. And we would go to Romans 13. But beloved, before we get back to this text, let me just ask you two questions. The government that commands the doctor to abort babies or end lives. The government that tells the minister to marry two men or marry two women. Just go ahead and obey Hold up Romans 13 and say, well, no, church. The government may be instituted by God, but that doesn't mean government, here it is, follows God. Government's instituted by God, but remember, a sinful humanity, it doesn't mean that that same government follows God. Where they follow God, where it's reasonable, where you don't sin, yes, you follow. And I pray you do. Paying taxes and the like, I pray you do. But in fact, more and more today, we see governments not following God. Is that not true? Governments want nothing to do with God. Governments want to rewrite God. Governments want to erase in revisionist history all vestiges of God. Do you want to be a part of that? No, you don't. No, you don't. As such, we're not to obey government without exception. It's like obeying till you walk off the cliff. No. 
It's because there's a greater obedience, a greater fear that we adhere to. Why are you here this morning? Because of God alone. That's who you fear. He is your master and he alone. And that obedience, the only one, is the only obedience that is without exception. Can I say that again? Fear of God, obedience to God, is the only obedience in your life that is without exception. That means what God says you do every time. That brings me to the second point. Fearing God is not safe. Maybe you're feeling that already. Are you feeling a little antsy this morning? Are you feeling squirmish? Good. Good. I think sometimes we need to awake, O oh sleeper. I think we need to arise from this slumber that we've been in. Fearing God is dangerous. Fearing God is not safe. Fearing God, here it is, requires great courage. You think Daniel was a wimp? Fearing God takes courage. The courage that we want when we run to a Hollywood movie that we love and we want to talk to our friends about, we love that stuff, but then give it to God and imply it in our lives, well, something happens. These Hebrew mid listen, Hebrew midwives, in ancient times, it would have been audacious. The heroes of the story, if we could make one, and we've said there's only one here of the story, but if, if someone rises in this story, it's the Hebrew midwives. In ancient times, that would have been unthinkable. And listen, those Hebrew midwives don't disobey the chief midwife. They don't disobey a mall security guard or a local sheriff, with all due respect to those vocations. That's not who they disobey. Who are they disobeying here? The most powerful human being in the land. You could say, midwife? Hebrew midwife? I gave you an order. I gave you an order. They disobey Pharaoh. Pharaoh, do you think that that would have caused some of their stomachs to be upset? You better believe it. You better believe it. That's scary stuff. Yet, yet, there is no question what God's people must do. Do you see the text? There's not even a hint of a question. Fear God. Obey God alone. I often wonder, myself included, how we cower at so much that is so less than Pharaoh. How often, brothers and sisters, I'm with you, do we cower at so much less than the power of Pharaoh? We wilt so often. Yet the midwives are a positively great example for us. Listen, here now, 2020. And again, I want to be clear. I know there's all kinds of practical questions that flow out of a text like that. We're going to deal with them midweek. We will. And we need to. You have great questions. I've been hearing them, and we need to work this through because we fear God. So Pharaoh, of course, takes notice. I mean, you don't have uh, disobedience to that scale, and you don't notice. The midwives have disobeyed government. So he calls them to his court. Look at verse 18. He calls them out. Can you just imagine the Hebrew midwives? You talk about courage. Pharaoh wants to see you, and they know what they have not done. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. The Hebrew midwives are very shrewd here. Let's not miss this. Many things have been said about the Hebrew midwives' response, but I want to be clear this morning. They are shrewd. They are not looking to make headlines. They're not. These midwives divert Pharaoh's attention, at least they try to, by way of a competing truth, and that is this, the vigorous delivery by the Hebrew moms. This would have been true. Unlike the Egyptian women, history documents this, who likely waited for the Hebrew midwives to do everything, pamper, not only get the baby ready, clean them up, get them all set. That would have been the Egyptian women. The Hebrew midwives, or the Hebrew mothers, sorry, conversely, just got to it. In fact, often the deal was done before the midwife even showed up. That's a true fact. So what the Hebrew midwives are doing here is pointing Pharaoh's attention for a moment to that fact. Now, to be clear, because I know what you're thinking, that does not mean that this is the reason, the vigor of Hebrew mothers. It doesn't mean that that's the reason the Hebrew midwives didn't kill the babies. Do you see that? That's not it. 
The verse before, let's not lose context. The very verse before makes clear why. The reason that they did not kill the male babies is because they feared God. In context, in truth, that's the reason why. But the Hebrew midwives demonstrate that there is a right way to do it. There is little doubt here the midwives did what they did out of the right fear. And as such, the midwives are a model here for us when our time comes. And beloved, as I said already this morning, our time is coming, if not already here, as it has for some of our brothers and sisters. Is the fear of God and God alone the right fear? Is that the fear that motivates you this morning? Is that what your gasoline is day to day? Do you do what you do because you fear God alone? Or do you fear men? Are you constantly working through the impressions of men? constantly considering what your reputation is amongst others, how this will look in social media, how you will come across to others? Or do you do what you do because you fear God alone? Do you live your life for an audience of one? Christian, is that how you live your life? When the time comes, and I ask you that question very pointedly because when the time comes, Will you fear God over ungodly government? Will you fear God over ungodly government? The Hebrew midwives are an example for us here, both in, mark this, both in the what and the how. There is a way to fear God, and here it is, even honor authority in our disobedience. Do you see that? God's character never changes. I love the way the Hebrew midwives approach this. They don't pull out their big protest sign and say, this is what we're, no. They just simply, they pull out another competing truth because there is a greater fear at play. What an example. Well, we'd say, what's the result of all this? I mean, the midwife's conduct raises a lot of questions, right? What does God think of all this? I mean, we could say to this point, we have a lot of things to say even about the response. What does God have to say about all this? God hasn't weighed in yet. That's, by the way, he's been, absent, at least in name, to this, to this point. And are we looking at this even right? What about the midwives? What of their plight going against Pharaoh like that? Will Pharaoh and Egypt finally learn their lesson? I mean, how many clues do you need, right? How many taps on the shoulder to say, you know, enough's enough, Pharaoh? Those are great questions, and they are all answered in the remaining verses of the chapter. Look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, you shall let every daughter live. What does God think of this? In a beautiful picture, look at verses 20 and 21, we see that God is pleased. Do you see that? What does God think of all of this? He's pleased. How so? In verse 21, we see that because the midwives feared God, what did he do? Look at it. This is causal. Because they feared God, he what? He gave them families. Now, church, I don't want us to miss this this morning. This is absolutely stunning. God not only dealt well with the midwives, in other words, he not only approves, but look at it again. What does he give those midwives? Families. Ancient Hebrew midwives were midwives, more often than not, why? Because they were barren. They could not bear their own children, so they went, and because they loved children, they went to help other ladies. Do you see what's going on here? God blesses them. He blesses those barren women. He turns this completely around. Consider for a moment, God not only preserves the babies of the fertile Hebrew women, praise the Lord, but he fills the womb of the barren ones too. You, you look at Pharaoh and you say, surely you have to see this now. Now you have the midwives having children. You can't go against these people. You're no match for God. Surely you have learned your lesson. Remember Pharaoh, remember that fear, the turn to dread, the turn to desperation. Don't you remember just imagine a little counselor beside him say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, sire, I'm sorry. Don't you remember the taskmaster plan? I'm just here to say it backfired. 
Now the short-circuiting midwife plan, like the whole thing's out of control, sire. Well, what do we do? Surely now you will relent, right? Surely now. Look at verse 22 for Pharaoh's response. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. That is desperation with nothing left to turn to but one's own depravity. That's what that is. No longer the midwives. This is no longer a secretly commissioned operation. Do you see that? This is no longer pulling in the two chief midwives and saying, you know, whispering in their ear, this, go and do this. No, this is now a public proclamation. Do you see that? Look at verse 22. He orders an order. The king's order. And to the Egyptian citizens, if we could paraphrase, to all his people, he says this. I command you all people, citizens everywhere, each and every one of you become a murderer. If you see, if you're walking through the streets and you see a male Hebrew baby, pick him up and toss him in the Nile by order of the king. Again, that is where wrong fear ends. We could look at it, we could cast it aside, but let, us, let this text inform us this morning. This is where wrong fear ends every time. And for sure, I will tell you this, Westbound, as we begin this blessed book, it gets more outrageous from foreign rulers, and we're gonna see much of that in the weeks to come. However, Pharaoh never lets that wrong fear go. It's one of those enduring things you, you wanna scratch your head until you give way to the sovereignty of God, and like, Pharaoh, how can you be so hard-hearted? And we'll see another Pharaoh do something just the same. And all of that hard-heartedness set against the Hebrew midwives, all of that man fear, all of that horizontal fear set against the godly fear of the Hebrew midwives. They feared God. Think about it, the lowliest, right? At that time, I want to be clear, the lowliest in the social strata. A Hebrew midwife, barren, a woman, a Hebrew and yet, who did they fear? God alone. And they were not only preserved, but they were protected. But look at it, God prospered them. God turned this whole situation around on Egypt. That is because he is God alone. And that is what we want to turn our attention to as we draw to a close this morning and this first chapter ends. God harnessing the wrong fears of Pharaoh and Egypt and using them to help those with the right fear of God alone. Don't miss that. That's the takeaway of this chapter. In this chapter of the history of God's people, we've seen God take evil intentions and turn them into the very fuel that blesses those that fear him. That is a sovereign God working through all things in creation and created. Romans 8, 28. And Westmount, that is something that only God alone can do. Mark this. This is no silver screen script. This is reality of your God. This is what he does. Sovereign over creation, over his people, sovereign over every single molecule in your body. He is sovereign. It doesn't go anywhere where God doesn't allow it to go. Like here. Hebrew midwives are exactly where they needed to be, in the fear of God. Westman, that is something that God alone has always done, preserve his people, protect them in his sovereignty, and that's what he continues to do. It's what God did. Remember in Genesis, we recounted God taking the evil plans of evil brothers, and what did he do? Turning it into preservation and blessing for the remnant of 70. Only God can do that. And it's what God will do a thousand years after this account, the book of Esther, how about another foreign court in Persia turning Haman's wicked plan, do you remember that book? Book of Esther, Haman's plan to annihilate the Jews and the very gallows that he erects, right, is the one that he dies on because God is in the business of turning around evil plans for his greater good. And it's what God did 500 years after that with another group of his people, the church, when a great persecution arose after the stoning of Stephen, do you remember that account in Acts 7? Do you remember the blood shed in Acts 7? And one Saul of Tarsus, he is the one, he would be the administrator of that violence and execution. And after that, he goes house to house and he drags people out, taking them to prison. 
ravaging the church. And with that much bloodshed, you'd be forgiven if you thought that the early church had crested with 3,000. You know what, church? After Acts 7, beginning of Acts 8, you've had your time. You're a blip on the radar of human history. You would be forgiven if you put down Acts 2 and think, or the first few opening chapters of Acts and think it's over. No, instead, as Matthew Henry has famously said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Instead, in Acts 9, when you turn the corner, you have the account of who? Saul of Tarsus, who would now become Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. God taking the instrument for ravaging the church, here it is, taking the very instrument that ravaged the church and taking that same instrument and he is going to build up the church. That is what God does and only God alone can do that. Instead then in that first century as the book of Acts gives way, you have churches popping up all over the place. Asia, Macedonia, even, are you kidding me, as far as Rome, churches in Rome, after blood, swords, and stones, God's church not only preserved, but it's growing. The growth of the church under such oppression and persecution is unrivaled. It has confounded pagan historians for centuries. To paraphrase, what is with these people? It was the same in the centuries that followed under evil empires and regimes, and it continues right up to today. Math quiz, persecution equals multiplication. Persecution equals multiplication. Today, some of the countries that have persecuted God's people the most, today, some of those regimes that have persecuted them the most are estimated to have the largest grassroots church populations on the globe. It's true, according to many estimates. In fact, one of the most notorious persecutors of Christians may very well have, we don't know this, the largest Christian population in the world. It is confounding with an earthly lens. But that is because there is one thing oppression cannot stop. And it's the plans, purpose, and power of a sovereign God through his people. Brothers and sisters, please take heart in that today. No oppression will stop God's kingdom from welcoming new worshipers. No persecution will stop local churches from springing up. Our sovereign God stands alone. His purposes will stand. His people will endure. That's you. May God give us the strength to look at the examples like these Hebrew midwives we've looked at today as we ready ourselves together for the days and the seasons that are coming. Father, we thank you for this precious text, this account, Lord, of these ladies who stood for you not just against their own lines, Lord, their own families and tribes, not against even just a country, Lord, a, a certain jurisdiction in the land, but against the greatest ruler of the land, Lord. May we follow their example in fearing you alone. God, help us when the wrong fear nips, Lord, at all the different pieces of our day. And let us yield mind, body, all of our being to the right fear so that we would obey you alone. Oh God, we pray this now in Christ's name, amen.